Good morning. Grab your Bible and uh, turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. We're returning to the Gospel of Luke today. Luke chapter 8, we've taken a uh, four-month hiatus, actually, from this uh, series in Luke, but we're going to resurrect it now and get it back on track. Um, it's interesting, uh, the, the topic that we're dealing with today, uh, in light of uh, someone that walked in today having uh, some issues with this very thing, and that is uh, we're going to be talking about finding balance and also about how we hear. Um, Debbie Fraker walked in. I'm going to pick on her for just a second. Debbie walked in uh, not feeling very well because she's been battling vertigo, among other things. And uh, vertigo, how many of you have had vertigo? Raise your hand. Uh, a few of you. And those of you who are raising your hands know that it is not a fun condition. It can be a very debilitating condition, in fact. Uh, an issue of balance, an issue of the inner ear, and, and all sorts of things that cause the body to feel so awry and out of sorts. So Debbie, our prayers are with you. We love you, and we're sorry that you're going through this. But I wanted to share a little bit this morning about balance and hearing. This is from the American Speech, Language, and Hearing Association. I'm quoting from their, uh, their, some of, one of their journals here. In the inner ear, the balance system consists of three semicircular canals that contain fluid and sensors that detect rotational movement of the head. Each of these semicircular canals lies at a different angle and is situated at a right angle to each other. The semicircular canals deal with different movement, up and down, side to side, tilting from one side to the other. All of them contain sensory hair cells that are activated by movement of inner ear fluid. As the head moves, hair cells in the semicircular canals send nerve impulses to the brain by way of the acoustic nerve and the nerve impulses are processed in the brain and help us know where we are in space or whether we're moving or not located near the semicircular canals are the uh, utricle and the saccule the ends of the semicircle canals connect with the utricle and the utricle connects with the saccule. The semicircular canals, hang with me, provide information about movement of the head. The sensory hair cells of the utricle and the saccule provide information to the brain about head position when it is not moving. The utricle is sensitive to change in horizontal movement and the saccule is sensitive to change in vertical acceleration such as going up and down in an elevator or on a roller coaster. Now, why do I bring in all this science? Uh, I was terrible at science, so I had to read all that because I didn't m remember any of that from my days in, uh, in high school science class. But nevertheless, why do I bring this up? I bring this up to say that in your body, your sense of balance, your ability to walk, your ability to run, your ability to stand up on your own two feet are very much a part of your ears. Your inner ear, in fact. God has created, he's fashioned your body in such a way that if your inner ear is awry, 
If something's not right in your ears, your balance will be way off. And you even see people with vertigo fall down just from simply standing up or walking, doing basic human functions. So Debbie, our hearts and prayers are with you because we know that that's a very difficult condition to have. Our balance, our ability to walk, our ability to stand and be balanced is very much related to our ears. This is not ironic. It's not ironic that God created our physical ears to affect our physical balance. Because you know what, friends? When it comes to our spiritual life, Jesus tells us that our ears affect our spiritual balance, our spiritual equilibrium. How we hear God, how we hear God's word affects our spiritual life and balance. The title of this message is Spiritual Equilibrium, Ears That Hear. Spiritual Equilibrium, Ears That Hear. Look with me, if you would, at Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. We're going to take this in chunks today. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. Jesus, uh, Luke narrating and then Jesus speaking in, later in verse 5. Luke narrates in verse 4. And when a great multitude had gathered and they had come to Jesus from every city, he spoke by a parable. Verse 5, this is Jesus speaking. A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside and it was trampled down. And the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on rock And as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Look over verses 4 through 8 one more time, and if you've got a pen, grab a pen. Uh, and take a look at your outline there, I want you to to underline the words uh, sprang up. You'll see it three times there. Find them on your outline. Underline them. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Underline the words sprang up. You'll see it once in verse uh, 6. You'll see it once in verse 7. You'll see it again in verse 8. Underline those. We'll come back to it in a minute. But as you're underlining those words sprang up, I want to start at the end of verse 8 in which Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let me read that again. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know, a smile should really come across your face if you're reading that properly. It's a peculiar statement. One that Jesus says over and over and over again in Scripture. In fact, he says it so often that you miss the irony. Because if you had heard it from the first time, you would look at it and just start kind of laughing, chuckling a little bit. It's peculiar because I haven't met many people who don't have ears. Have you? Yet Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him hear. Another strange statement. For of all those born with ears, and I haven't met many who 
have not had ears, but of all those born with ears, I don't know very many of those people who can't hear. Now certainly there are a fractional minority of deaf people in the world. Data from the National Institutes of Health estimate that one in 500 children born, one in 500, are born with deaf or hardness of hearing. So it's a fractional minority, 0.2% of the population. There are some who can't hear. But it's exceedingly strange, don't you think, for Jesus to single out 0.2% of the world's population in Luke 8.8. Surely he has a larger audience in mind, don't you think? Of course he does. Jesus knows that people have ears. He knows that the vast majority of human beings are born with the capacity to hear. And yet, Jesus is found here making an unusually obvious statement about hearing with your ears. And why does he do it? On your outline, despite our natural God-given capacity to hear, Jesus is concerned that his teaching is falling on spiritually deaf ears. Despite our natural God-given capacity to hear, Jesus is concerned that his teaching is falling on spiritually deaf ears. He is concerned that while most people can audibly hear what he says and visually read what is written in his word, that much, that, 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 that such sensory experiences are not translating to a change of heart and mind in his audience. And this concern of Christ is beautifully illustrated in the parable of the sower, or should I say, the parable of the four soils, which I think it should be more aptly titled. An elementary parable that many Christians suppose, they've heard it before, and they suppose that they rightly understand it until they see and hear it again for the first time. And so in the words of Jesus, I say to you, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's read the parable again, and we'll come to its meaning in just a short while later. Look again at verses 4 through 8 of Luke 8. When a great multitude had gathered, they came to Jesus from every city. He spoke by a parable, saying, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed it, some fell by the wayside, the path, or the road, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Thus far, we've just read the story, the parable, the narrative. And Jesus really hasn't given much interpretation to it. So we'll reserve judgment as well. Let's wait on interpretation for just a minute. And let's look at the next verse, verse 9. Then Jesus' disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? What does this parable mean? 
They inquire, don't they? They inquire, Jesus' disciples do, about the nature of this parable, about the meaning of the parable. And I don't want you to overlook verse 9 because it's part and parcel of what Jesus is getting at with respect to hearing and spiritual equilibrium and balance. Because that the disciples asked Jesus in verse 9, what does this mean? It's not just a verse, friends, that's thrown in as an ordinary part of the story. No, no. Luke, in his arrangement of the gospel, is highlighting the fact that Jesus' disciples are inquiring about the meaning of the story. What does this parable mean, Lord? The very nature of a disciple is to make inquiry with his master. The very nature of a disciple of Jesus is to make inquiry of the Lord's teaching. And I ask you very plainly, do you do this? Not everyone does this. We're talking about spiritual equilibrium. We're talking about finding balance in life as God intended us to find it. We're talking about having ears that hear, not just audible sounds, but hearing in such a way that we go on to understanding that it sinks down into our heart and mind and causes life change. And what the disciples are doing here is they're beginning that process, a process that many people never even get on the road toward. And that is they're asking, why, how, teach me, what does this mean? Some people out there, they hear the Word of God and they respond like a warm blanket. They just kind of sit there when it comes to understanding the Word of God. They are nonplussed when they hear the Word of God. They just sit there and, and they're a bit mystified, they're a bit perplexed, but they never inquire further to gain understanding. Warm bodies but non-responsive in heart and mind. Others, others hear the word, but they hear it with apathy in their hearts. They think, who cares? This is boring. Let me get back to more entertaining things. Let me get back to my phone. Let me get back to my friends. Let me get back to my, my TV. This is dull. The word is boring and dull to them, and they do not inquire further into it. Still others hear the word and they mock it. They're dismissive of it. They're outright dismissive of it. Before it can even be read to them, they assume it is folly and foolishness. And they do not inquire further. They just dismiss it. Such hearers are described often in Scripture. I've listed on your outline an example of some of these hearers in Luke 17. Or excuse me, Acts 17. You can read it on your outline. I'll read it here. Luke 17, verse 17. This is Paul in Athens encountering a variety of people. And notice, notice the variety of responses to the teaching of God's word. Therefore, Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered Paul. And some said... What does this babbler want to say? Outright dismissive. Look at that babbler up there. He's babbling. Idle babbling. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. Outright dismissive. 
They throw it aside. Don't even acknowledge him. Verse 18, certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. Trying to understand it a little bit, not quite sure, because he preached to them Jesus in the resurrection. Verse 19, and they took Paul and they brought him to the Areopagus, a place of, of great teaching and social interaction. They brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange thing to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. Jump down all the way to verse 32. And when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. Paul had gone on to preach to them from verses 21 to 31, and at the very end, there were still a variety of responses to him. Some outright dismissive, mocking him. Look at that babbler. Others saying, ah, I think I want to learn more, but I'm not so sure. And still others who seemed to be genuinely inquiring with Paul about what he was talking about, and they wanted to learn more. Same can be said of Acts 2. When the, uh, at the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended upon the people and they all spoke in tongues, there were many people that were witnessing this event in Acts 2. And this is what they said in verse 12 of Acts 2. They were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? But others mocked, saying, ah, they are just full of new wine. Outright dismissive that the disciples asked Jesus what does this mean is not an insignificant statement it's not an insignificant part of the story in the gospel of Luke it demonstrates that the disciples were serious about learning genuinely serious about learning it demonstrates that they were serious about growing in Christ that they were serious about maturing in their faith. That they were serious about becoming wise. That they understood in the words of James, chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God for it, who gives liberally to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. They recognized that in the spirit of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 7, that if they would ask it would be given to them. If they would seek, that they would find. If they would knock, that the door would be opened. And notice this. Everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. The genuine heart that seeks the truth of God, Jesus says in Matthew 7, will be satisfied. The heart that's looking for God, the person out there in the world who's genuinely seeking the truth of God, over and over again in Scripture, it is indicated that that person will receive it. The disciples are knocking on the door of the wisdom of God, and Jesus is opening that door. And I ask you very plainly, how do you respond to the teaching of God's Word? Dismissive? Probably not. Probably not. You wouldn't be sitting here if you were just outright dismissive of it. Apathetic? Maybe. It's kind of, oh, I've heard this story before. Oh, man, Neil's preaching on the parable of the, the sower, the four soils. I've heard this before. 
This is not going to be very entertaining for me. Apathy, boredom. Do you react with inquiry as the disciples reacted? Seeking to know the truth of the matter. Genuinely interested in asking God, what, what can I learn? And if you've already heard it, what can I learn that's new, that's fresh, that I have not known before about this? The disciples are knocking on the door of the wisdom of God and Jesus is opening that door. And he says in verse 10 of Luke 8, he says this, and he said to them, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables, that seeing they may, they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Jesus says, it's going to be given to you, disciples, because of your earnest quest to find the truth. But to those who are not earnestly seeking my truth, I'm going to speak to them in parables and in stories that they will not understand. That even though they'll, they'll see it, they won't understand it. And even though they'll hear it, they won't hear it with the ears that I want them to use. Now comes the time for Jesus to explain it to his inquiring disciples, which he will do in verses 11 to 15. As we read each of these verses, in verses 11 to 15, I'd like to reference your attention to the original parable itself. So on the back of your outline, you'll see four sets from the four sets of the story. You'll see the story followed by the interpretation. The story followed by the interpretation. And we'll go through that uh, together, all four sets, so that we can reference both the original parable and the interpretation of it. There's a little bit of a method to this madness. Now is the time, by the way, to recall the words sprang up, which you underlined three times in the parable. Let's start with verse 5. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 5. A sower went out to sow his seed, Jesus says. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. And now the interpretation in verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear, but then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Okay? The seed is the word of God. The sower is not blatantly identified by Jesus' words, though we are, can safely assume that the sower is probably Jesus or anyone who goes out to share the word of God with others. But this particular instance of sowing the word or sowing the seeds, which would have been a, a particularly apropos story in Jesus' culture, we're not as familiar with the, the farming metaphors, but they certainly were. This particular instance of sowing the word is fraught with trouble. For starters, the seed that was tossed fell on the wayside. Those by the wayside, Jesus says, by the road or by the path, and he has something to say about those by the wayside. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear, but then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. 
The seed that was sown fell by the wayside, the road or the path. Did it spring up? No. No mention of sprouting. That seed did not sprout. It didn't spring up. No, instead it was stepped on. It was trampled. It was devoured by the birds of the air. A reference there to, to Satan and perhaps the, the demons that have come and that, that have taken away the word and its impact and its effect upon the person who's heard it. Jesus says the devil comes and steals it. Why? Lest they should believe and be saved. The devil knows that those who believe in the word of God, those who believe as they read the word of God, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that those who believe such truth will receive everlasting life. And so the devil knows, in accordance with John 3.16, that for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The devil knows that truth. And so because he knows it, he is keen on taking away the knowledge of that truth as fast as it is sown. Once it's sown, the devil's work is to snatch it, to steal it, because he knows that once they've believed, they'll be saved. Nothing sprang up, no germination in the soil, no life was born from the seed that was sown, for the devil stole it. But another seed is sown. We come to verse 6. Some fell on the rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And now the interpretation. But the ones on the rock, verse 13, are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, who believe for a while, and in time of temptation, fall away. Number, excuse me, a number of questions, of course, in this portion of the story and the interpretation. The first I want to ask, though, is, is a simple one. Did the seed spring up? Yes. Hold on a second. Some qualitatively different thing has happened here as opposed to the first seed that we looked at. The same is true of what we see in verse 6 and verse 7 and verse 8. That qualitative difference is that in verses 6, 7, and 8, we see something springing up as opposed to verse 5 in which nothing sprouts and instead is stolen. So something qualitatively different has happened between verses 5 and verse 6. A seed has sprouted. A shoot from the ground has come up. A seed has be become a plant. New life has taken place in clear contrast to the seed that never germinated in verse 5. Wait a minute. New life. Pastor, are you suggesting that the soil of verse 6 represents a person who, while lacking in many respects, and we'll discuss those in just a minute, while lacking a strong foundation in many respects, nevertheless, is this a person who received everlasting life? I haven't heard it that way. Well, I'll answer your question with another question. What, what 
according to Luke 8.12. Look at verse 12. What, according to verse 12, is the condition of salvation? What must one do to be saved, according to verse 12? Believe. Let's read it. Look at 8.12. This is within the same story. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Jesus says very clearly the condition of salvation. It is belief. He says it within the story itself. And what then does Jesus say about belief in verse 13 with respect to the seed that fell in rocky soil? Let's read verse 13. We know what the condition of salvation is. It's to believe. And now we come to verse 13. But the ones on the rock, the ones sown on the rock, are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, who believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. He says they believe for a while. He says when they hear the word, they receive the word with joy. The seed germinates in them. It it springs up. New life is born. Why? Because they believe and are saved. But pastor, they say, it says they only believe for a while. You're right. They only believe for a while. But the condition of salvation in verse 12 wasn't perpetual lifelong belief. Now was it? The condition of John 3.16 isn't constant and continual faith, now is it? Simple faith. Simple trust in Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. New life, everlasting life, is born in us the moment we believe in Jesus as the Savior. How do I know? Jesus says as much. In John 5.24, he says this. Write down John 5.24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The moment we believe, Jesus says, we've passed from death to life. New life has begun in us. A seed has sprouted. Something has germinated and it's sprouted up. A plant has been born. The moment a person believes, he or she is saved, period. The moment a person believes, they pass from death to life and shall not come into judgment, Jesus says. There are many problems with the person epitomized by the rocky soil in Luke 8. There are many problems by the person epitomized by the rocky soil of Luke 8. But salvation is not one of those problems. Alberto Valdez writes this. It's on your outline. Verse 13 does not signify a qualitatively different kind of belief, but rather a chronologically shorter one. Neither does it imply that continuance in belief achieves salvation since the one who believes receives salvation and can go in peace. He references Luke 7.50, which, by the way, if you look at Luke 7.50, he says to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. A place in which Jesus heals 
heals a woman who's dealt with a great deal of sin in her life. And he says in that instant, woman, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. You can go in peace now. Romans 5.1 Having been justified by faith with God, we have peace. Peace. Paul says. You can't have peace if the moment you believe, you suppose in your mind that you must perpetuate that belief all the way until death. You can't have peace if salvation is contingent upon not just an initial prayer of faith in Christ, but a perpetual, lifelong, continual prayer of faith. How can you possibly have assurance that you are saved if you must persevere all the way to the very end? Answer, you can't. But yet Jesus talks about assurance. He talks about assurance time and time again in the New Testament. He says that once you believe in him, you've passed from death into life. And you shall not come into judgment. Is he lying to you? Is he just speaking metaphorically? Is Paul and all of the New Testament writers speaking abstractly when they talk about the peace that you can have now in Christ as a result of your faith? Of course not. Jesus isn't lying to you. Paul and Peter and many other of the New Testament writers, John, they're not speaking abstractly. They're speaking specifically to the root, to the core of the issue. And it is this plainly. The moment you believe, you can rest assured that you have everlasting life. Amen? That's a hallmark of our church. We are a church that believes in the grace of Jesus Christ. Not all pastors that stand before you speaking from Luke chapter 8 will speak about it in this way. In fact, you may be sitting there now thinking, I've never heard this parable spoken this way. I've never heard this parable taught this way. That's okay. Because guess what? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And we are declaring as a church that we need to look upon God's word in ways that shed, that throw aside old theological categories that we've grown accustomed to. And we need to read it fresh and new. And for the first time, asking the Holy Spirit, Lord, guide me as I read this. And as we read this plainly, it is clear that the devil steals away the word of God because he knows if you believe, you'll be saved. And then in the very next verse, in verse 13, he says, oh, and these people, despite their rocky foundation, they believed. Many problems epitomized by the person with the rocky soil in Luke 8. He lacks a good foundation. He has no root. He quickly falls when temptation comes his way. He has trouble continuing in a life of maturity. But eternal salvation is not one of his problems. He has that going for him, as does each one of the next two soils. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, a third soil. And some fell among thorns. That is the seed of the word of God. It fell among thorns. And the thorns sprang up with it. What's the it there? The thorns sprang up with it. What's the it? The plant that sprang up as a result of being sown and germinating and, and sprouting new life. And some of the word of God fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up 
with the plant and choked it. He interprets it in verse 14. Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard the word, go out and are choked with the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. You know, nothing is said here about condemnation. Nothing is said about the the fires of hell. It is simply an indication of a person who receives the word, the seed germinates, new life is sprouted, but as it's sprouted, thorns come up with it and begin to choke it. Have you ever had that experience in your Christian life? (laughs) I have. I have. Much of my Christian life has been the third soil. The cares of this world, the pleasures of this world, the riches of this world, being distracted by the things of the world. Maybe you're this soil right now. You're, you're distracted by the things of the world. doesn't mean you're not saved. doesn't mean you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. It simply means that there are thorns that are rising up in your life, afflicting you, causing you harm. You know it too. You can sense it within you. So Jesus says to you, not, his, his word to you is not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. He already knows that you've trusted in him for salvation. But to you with thorns throughout your life, he gives you another option, another soil with which you are to shoot for as you receive and hear and try to find balance in your spiritual life. The fourth soil. Verse 8, but others fell on good ground, sprang up, Third instance of sprang up. We certainly know this person's saved. So then just go back over the previous text. But, but others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. The interpretation in verse 15. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and a good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Here is the soil that Jesus asks us to emulate having a heart, having soil that hears the word, that springs up to new life and continues on to fruitfulness. This is the soil that Jesus is looking for. They hear God's word qualitatively different than others. They hear it with a noble heart, kale in Greek, meaning an honorable heart. They hear it with a good heart, agathe in Greek, agathe, looking for its usefulness, is, is the spirit of that word. Looking for its usefulness, looking for its benefits. They, they, they see the word and they say, this is going to be useful to me. This is going to benefit me. What can I learn? Well, that took time, didn't it? To, to delve into the parable of the four soils in Luke 8. That took time to dig through and try to unearth what Jesus was referring to there. But that's precisely what Jesus means when he says, those with ears to hear, let them hear. He doesn't want apathy. He doesn't want a nonplussed attitude, one that says, "Ah, I can't understand, I give up. And he certainly doesn't want us to mock his word. On your outline, Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, toward the bottom of your outline there. Remind them, remind them that is the Christians in your church, remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. 
But be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Keep that in mind as we finish out in Luke 8 briefly. Look at verse 16 in your Bibles. It's not listed there on your outline. The last two little vignettes. Jesus says, No one, when he's lit a lamp, and by the way, the lamp here is the light of the Word of God that's being lit, that's being shown. No one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed. No, you set it on a lampstand that those who enter may see the light for nothing is secret that will not be revealed and anything hidden that will not be made known and come to light. He's saying, look, the word of God is going out. It's being lit. It's not going to be hidden. It's going to be out there for the, for the taking to look upon the light. And this is what he says in verse 18. Therefore, take heed how you hear. How you hear what? How you hear the word of God. Take heed how you hear it. For whoever has, to him more will be given. And whoever does not have, even what he seems to have will be taken from him. Take heed how you hear. Take heed how you hear. Will you put in the necessary time? Jesus is asking. Will you be earnest in seeking truth? Will you listen again for the first time when the Holy Spirit guides, guides you to His Word? Take heed how you hear. Don't just settle in in old ways and categories. Don't just settle in with old knowledge and saying, well, I've, I've learned it all. I can learn no more. Challenge yourself. Take heed how you hear. Putting in the time, the earnestness, an emotion that says, I'm willing, God, what do you have for me today? I'm willing to learn. And in Mark's version, by the way, in Mark 4, verse 24, of the parable of the four soils, Mark, uh, in, the, in, the, in the story that we're reading that follows out thereafter, instead of take heed how you hear, Mark puts it, has Jesus saying, take heed what you hear. Take heed how you hear. Take heed what you hear. What is the content that you're surrounding yourself with? What are you hearing throughout the day? Are you putting yourself in position to hear God's word? Take heed how you hear in the gospel of Luke. Take heed what you hear in the gospel of Mark. Will you immerse yourself in the truth of God's word? As you do, you will find yourself growing in righteousness and good works. You'll be given more. He says, whoever has to him will be given even more. And whoever does not have, even what he seems to have will be taken from him. You will grow in righteousness and good works. You'll begin to capture the essence of what James says, to not only be hearers of the word, but doers of it. And that is what Jesus is looking for all along. Not just for us to hear with our ears audibly, but to understand with the mind and let the word penetrate our hearts and exhibit, demonstrate, Christ's teaching in our words and in our actions. When Jesus' mother 
and brothers came to him right after this story. They came to him and they were seeking him. Jesus, we're seeking you. And the crowd realized, oh, this is his mom and his brothers. This is, they, they, they need to go get the rabbi. They need to go get Jesus and bring him to them. It was a situation of honor. You, you must come and, and recognize your mother and your brothers. And when the crowd said, your mother and your brothers are here looking for you, right after this story, this was, this was Jesus' response. It's our memory verse for the month. But Jesus answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. The theme of hearing, friends, is riddled throughout verses 4 to verse 21 of Luke 8. Those who hear the word of God and do it. It's the crescendo in verse 21 of what Jesus was driving at. Your hearing in your physical life affects your balance. When you have a problem with your inner ear, you'll fall down. So also in your spiritual life, how you hear and what you hear will affect your spiritual life. If you are not hearing this, and if you are not hearing it in a posture of humility, receptive to what God has for you, you will fall down. Let us be people who have a soil that is fertile and ready for not only the seed to sprout, which it's done in many of us already, but for that sprout to grow into a fruitful tree. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to hear from you. That is our prayer, God. Would you speak to us, Lord Jesus, through your word, through your church, through song, through prayer, through testimony, would you speak to us, Lord? And would we hear it in such a way that we would have receptive and fertile hearts, ready and willing to grow in maturity and fruitfulness? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.